0: I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, I'm super excited to uh, get into today's topic because we're going to be talking to Bobby Stuckey. Um, you know, probably I would argue one of the most influential, famous uh, wine professionals um, in the country. We can call him a psalm, right? Oh, we'll absolutely. Him. He, I mean, he is a psalm. Obviously, he's a master psalm. Um, but, you know, I like to just. He's also just a cool dude. Yeah. Um. So it'll be really interesting to to talk to him. I'm really
1: excited about that. I got to eat at. Have you been to his restaurant in Colorado? I have not been to Fresca. No, I can't say I have.
0: I got to go two years ago. Naomi and I were vacationing. Uh, like we decided to do some national parks and, and in Boulder because that's actually where I was born. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I was born in Boulder. Uh, and lived there till I was like three. And then my, my, my dad got a job at Auburn university and we wound up war eagle going, moving to Auburn. Um, but, uh, I wanted to sort of show Naomi Boulder. I didn't really remember it that well. So we went back and I made a reservation at Frasca, um, you know, and it was just an incredible experience. I probably one of the best dining experiences that she and I've ever had. They had, you know, and I was definitely a regular customer. Like I don't want to be like, Oh, did you email ahead and like tell them who you were? Like, Nope, did not. This is going to be the first time I've ever talked to Bobby. Um, i you know i bet the team was incredible the food was awesome the wines were amazing it was just a really really special experience yeah
1: that's super cool so i'm
0: very excited to talk to him
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's on my to-do list one of these days uh i i have never actually been to colorado so it's it's definitely it's on the list of places i would like to visit but haven't made it there yet i had a, i had a question for you though sort of on this general topic which is like you know you and i have have talked a lot about sommeliers and we've talked a lot about the culture of celebrity that's around some sommeliers and and um uh, And when and where that is, I think uh, uh, we've talked more about the sort of negatives, but I actually think that and, you know, we'll get into this maybe a little in the interview, but I do think there's sort of a positive side to it when it comes to someone like Bobby, who I have had the privilege of meeting a couple of times in that he I think is a really good example for. Something to aspire to be if you do sort of seek that that loftier realm, which is, you know, he he seems in all my interactions with him and from almost everything I've heard and, and you can you as you can attest to, you know, you kinda get this sense from going to the restaurants that he operates. You know, just his sense of hospitality is, is genuine and seems to be the thing that motivates more than anything else his his love for wine and, and love for service and that is um I think a really important thing to kind of to hold, uh, as you work in the service industry, you know, that, that it is about hospitality first and foremost. And, and that, that is something that, that I, you know, feel really strongly about. I mean, I agree.
0: I think at the places where you, where I, it it always seems to be the places that I have the best experience was a combination of like, obviously awesome food, but hospitality being amazing as well. Mm -hmm. Like, um, It just it's because I think we talked about this, you know, a few weeks ago. We talked about tasting menus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you when you go to a place where you are spending so much money, the way you are treated, I feel like, is just as important, if not more important, than the the, how amazing the food is, right? And I think, you know, I am sure that this happened in Seattle as well. You know, but in New York, there was there was this trend across the last five or ten years where I have to be honest, like it wasn't that fun to eat out,
2: yeah, because
0: it was like you are you are lucky to be here. You know, we are really hard to get into. We've got an amazing press on social. Um, and so basically, like, the service is going to be really gruff. We're going to push you really fast to eat and get out. And, like, you know, I used to talk about it this with Naomi, with friends, people here in the office, everyone. Like, at some point, like, if I'm spending a lot of money on dinner, and for me, like, a lot of money is even, like, I'm talking, like, if it's 50 bucks, like, a person or, or 30 bucks a person, whatever, before we're talking wine, like, come on, like, you – I expect to be able to sit at the table and eat leisurely and drink leisurely, finish my bottle of wine and go not have this like, okay, like, first of all, you showed up and your table's not ready yet, even though your reservation was at eight. And so we're not going to see you till eight 45 or nine. And then by the time you sit at nine, the food's going to fly out and you're going to be done by nine 45. Like it's just, yeah. it's not a pleasurable experience. It doesn't leave you wanting to dine, you mm-hmm. know? And I feel like you, you've had these, these people, all the while shouting about hospitality like you know Danny Meyer like Bobby and others who get it and there are the places where I do want to spend my money
1: yeah for sure and i think you 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 make a good point which is that i think there've been ways and, and it's come from the from the kitchen side of things for sure i think it has definitely come from the front of house side too where there's been this sort of Uh, emphasis on the things that do translate to social media and things like that and and an experience a dining experience is a hard thing to encapsulate in an instagram post or a tweet or whatever and yet those are the things that i think most of us who dine out uh, whether it's frequently or infrequently that what really resonates with us is that is that sense of being taken care of i mean that is really in the end most of what we are paying for we're paying for that experience of being you know yeah being t- being taken care of and being you know waited on in some ex- to some extent and if and the food has to be good and the wine has to be good and all that but but there's i have a pretty good i have a pretty big threshold for like perfectly fine but not mind blowing food and wine if the people serving it to me seem to genuinely care that i'm having a nice time and that my experience is pleasurable and and i can you know i don't need food that completely reinvents My idea of what cuisine is to have a really, really great meal like like, you know, maybe like you, some of my most um, treasured dining experiences and memories have a lot more to do with the way I felt during the process and less about a specific dish.
0: Agreed. I completely agree. I mean, like one of the, another one of my most memorable meals I can think of was um when I was in Spain and uh I went to Disfrutar and the service was just so I mean the food was amazing, amazing, but the service was just so cool. Like they were really friendly, they were um, really helpful like I asked a lot of questions nothing felt like I was being judged by the questions I was asking um, and they just like had fun with me and with my guests and so I was like wow this like I would come back here all the time and people that I've recommended to go there and tell as well when they've been in Barcelona like I've like, been like yo, know it's, it's definitely worth it have all said the same thing you know and mm-hmm. I think that that really matters Yeah. awesome well I can't wait to, to get into it with Bobby so I think without further ado why don't we bring him on yeah sounds good so without further ado, Zach, I'm really thrilled to be welcoming Bobby Stuckey to the podcast this week. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for the time.
0: So I guess, you know, let's, let's kick it off. I mean, I want, I want to get right into it because um, someone as um, experienced as you and with a depth of the end breadth of knowledge of the industry as you, I think, is really uniquely suited to, to comment on a bunch of topics that that Zach and I have chatted about for a long time here on the podcast. Um So, you know, look, you're one of the most famous sommeliers in America. Um, And, you know, I know that I've read a lot of things that you've written um, about certification and the importance of certification. I've eaten at your restaurant, which, by the way, is I was telling Zach uh, at the beginning of the podcast is probably one of the most memorable dining experiences I've ever had. Um, And I am curious for the the amount of uh, sort of importance I know you place on certification and other sommeliers do as well. I do think there's probably a lot of consumers... Those who listen to the podcast, especially who don't even know that sommelier certification exists, right? So, why do you think being certified as a sommelier is so important? Especially when there's so many consumers who probably have no idea that there even is such a thing or why someone's wearing a pin who's serving them.
2: It's not that I I, I cherish the MS certification or any certification. I just know we need some sort of parameters to get people to do a professional job, because at the end of the day, um, you know, I grew up, you know, the restaurant business, is a very blue collar business. Uh, It's changed a lot in 25 years, but some things haven't changed. And I I think of 30 years ago as a busboy or a waiter, we didn't have a path to go from point A to point B. Like I look at if I have to in our company, you know, I have 200 employees. If I hire a human resources person or an accountant or a bookkeeper I can look at their resume and say, they've done this, they've done this, they've done this. Now I just need to know if they work with us culturally. Versus, you know, a wine professional, and we don't have to call them a sommelier, we can just say a wine professional, he or she is in charge of a major point of guest interaction, training to the staff, and economic health for a business. But at the moment, we don't have a way to say, oh... I can't just go to a website and say, oh, I'm putting up a, a, a resume. I need a wine professional for a new restaurant I have. You're kind of going blind. Do they understand writing a wine list? Do they understand the P&L statement? Do they understand being a great leader to the staff and encouraging? There's so many nuances that we just don't have a codification for that at the moment. What I have noticed, and right or wrong, and there are always outliers. There are always people who buck the trend. But what I have noticed in 15 years of owning my own business and 25 years of being a wine director and being in, in charge of other sommeliers is it's amazing if you push yourself to a certain accreditation, let's just say for sense of discussion, the advanced at the CMS level. It really gets people to a different level than maybe they were before that. Are there people who naturally do it on their own? Yes. But as an employer, that's not fair to the employers out there that are trying to fill these positions.
0: Interesting. So it's, it sounds to me, you, you sort of, you view it almost like getting a degree, a college degree, right? It's it's another degree. I mean, I, I have an MBA, Zach, ha, you know. Do you have a secondary degree? Sorry. (laughs) I do not. (laughs) But but you do. I mean, it's a signal to the market, right? Which I think we talk about a lot. Economists talk about a lot in terms of signaling to employers. And I think the way you're describing it, which I actually have not heard described in that way before, really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Zach, what do you think?
1: Well, so I think a really fascinating thing about this is is what some of what Bobby, what you're just talking about, which is, and and I actually really agree with this, and I think it's an area where sometimes the CMS and other organizations are are playing, trying to play a little bit of catch up, which is almost moving away from the really specific knowledge about wine, which is obviously important, and looking at when you are accrediting someone as a as a wine professional at a really high level, that they have to understand wine as a business, and and I and I'd be curious because you're someone who I think you know is both uh super hospitality oriented and that's I think why a lot of um people in our profession tend to gravitate towards you. But also, you know, a very shrewd and astute business person with a lot of businesses uh and business ventures. And and you know, I, I'm curious because one one thing that I find concerning as someone who who does run a wine program is people who don't understand who understand wine really well but don't understand the business side of wine at all. And and how do you how do you kind of um get people who maybe love wine to to love, you know, a wine program as a wine program's profitability as much as its, you know, breadth and depth of wine.
2: Well, first of all, thanks for the nice compliment. I wouldn't consider myself a shrewd business person. I consider myself someone who's paid attention for a long time in this business and made a ton of mistakes. And as long as I keep remembering the right things I do and remember the mistakes, it gives you an ability to run a business a little differently than I did 15 years ago. And I, I think, you know, if you put your hand up, no one's forced into being a wine professional. No one's like, no one is a waiter one day and the owner says, hey, uh, I know you're a great server. Can you please be the sommelier of the company? Um, I know you don't want to do that. No, most people, 99.9% of the people, he or she puts their hand up and says, I want to be a wine professional. Well, when you do that, you have to realize that it's not a, it can still be your hobby on your days off, but that's what you're doing for a living, and businesses aren't hobbies. I mean, I always, you know, if you want to have a hobby, go have a hobby, but if it's time to go to work, that's different, and there's bills to pay, and quite frankly, we're in a business, the restaurant business, I've worn a lot of different hats in the wine world from supplier producer, wine buyer, owner of a restaurant, all the, and everything in between. And, and and at the end of the day, the restaurant business runs on very, very small margins. It's very hard to make a living. It's, it's, it's harder than it used to be. And you just look at it this way. If you talk to all of your future wine professionals and explain to them and, and help them have some financial literacy in our business it can help. And if, if someone is just so caught up into their movement that they don't want to embrace the company that's paying their mortgage or their rent or whatever about the financial literacy, then they probably shouldn't be a wine professional. They should be a wine enthusiast and go do something else for their job. Real quick, just so we're all on the same page for people listening that maybe don't look at a P&L statement. My, my father doesn't say a lot, but what he does, it's really brilliant. And my dad was not in the restaurant business, but he said something wonderfully to me. He goes, you know, look at your business. If you did a 20% profit at Goldman Sachs, or, and if you did a 20% profit one quarter, you would probably get talked to by the board of directors and the investors and say, that's not very good. But in the restaurant business, if you did 10% profit in fine dining, you're considered like an outlier superstar Hall of Fame. So what's considered Hall of Fame in the restaurant business is considered abject failure in many other businesses.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I think that there's a lot of, you know, misunderstanding of how hard the restaurant business is and what it does take to succeed. Um, and so I, I want to pick up on, on one word you use, which was movement. And this was a question I know we plan to ask you later in the in the podcast, but sort of we're here and, and we write a lot about movements when it comes to wine, um, beer, cocktails, et cetera, with Vine, on Vine Pair. Um, but one of the movements that we talk about a bunch is a movement that I think only exists in the bubbles. But it's a movement that has sort of taken up the wine world with discussion. Now there's, you know, right now there's a big wine conference happening in New York. And there's a lot of producers coming to our office and they all ask me the same question. Like how much do you guys write about natural wine? Are you paying attention to natural wine? But I think you're really, um, a perfect person to comment on this because you have a, a really great restaurant that's outside of the bubble, right? And when I travel to other cities outside of the bubbles, right? So when I talk about bubbles, I'm really talking about New York, LA, San Francisco, and a little bit of Chicago. But when I go to Atlanta or Nashville or um, you know, New Orleans, I don't see natural wine. That often. So, do you think, like, as a as a wine culture, and especially, and I'm I'm asking you as a journalist, as a journalist, we're paying too much attention to a movement that most consumers don't know anything about and don't really care about to begin with.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I look at it this way. Um, well, first of all, uh, I'll go right on the record. I'm not anti-natural wine. Um, I'm anti to move movements. Doesn't matter if it's whatever it is that doesn't make the bell curve of all the guests feel great. There's very few restaurants in the world that can have longevity that are just based on a small niche and a small age demographic and and all that. And so I look at natural wine like look, I I am probably the one person in America that has taken a dishwasher who had just got US citizenship in two thousand five and had never been on an airplane before. And I took him to Friuli, to Radicon, and Gravner. So I've been spending over 20-some years, two decades, looking at all types of wine and enjoying all types of wine, some of them falling in the natural wine camp. Um, What's interesting is sometimes movements, it could be anything, it doesn't have to be natural wine, it could be gluten-free, it could be vegetarian, it could be whatever, sometimes the movement's megaphone is much smaller than the reality. Like I have a pizzeria, and I'm in Boulder, Colorado, the center of the universe for gluten-free everything. But at the end of the day, if I run my sales mix for Pizzeria Locali, less than 8% of all the pizzas that go out are gluten-free. So that happens with, with food, with cars, with fashion, with music. These, this is not new. It's new for us in the wine world to have a movement that has such a large megaphone for maybe not as maximum of what it really represents.
0: I mean, that you, so basically exactly what you're saying is what the data that we have through, you know, our readership and looking at trends shows, which is, I completely agree. I think, And I think that's a really astute way to put that in terms of all movements is that there's one thing of people who are loud about it, whether it's, us as journalists writing a lot about it, or people who are just talking about it on social media, and then another thing to actually look at sales. Um, and yeah, yeah, you're completely right. That's that's really, really, really interesting. I'm I'm really glad that you brought that point up. Um, yeah.
1: So I have a I have a question that I think comes back to this sort of question a little bit about you know balancing maybe looking at things like the, these various movements, natural wine or others, looking at the the huge sort of diversity of people's experience with and, and familiarity with wine. And, and and this is a question that in part was prompted by an email from a reader. So I want to give them credit for that as well, or for I'm a listener rather. And uh, and it's sort of, how do you avoid, and I think, and I will say again, to just throw more compliments your way, because that's apparently my role on this podcast today. Um, <laughs> I think you do a really good job of this in terms of of not, despite your lofty credentials and tremendous experience not coming across as someone who is particularly snobby about wine. How do you avoid that? How do you, how do you become someone who is both extremely knowledgeable and, and influential in some ways? And yet I think for, I would imagine that the, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I've certainly talked to plenty of other people who have met you who are, who are in the industry, but also people who are, I'm sure just dining at, at Frasca or wherever. How do you, how do you avoid coming, uh, coming across as snobbish?
2: Um, I, well, I, first of all, I don't think this is, uh, just for me, I think, As you go in your career and the longer you spend in your career, and there's some people that just are in the career a long time and aren't trying to improve themselves all the time. But if you're honestly trying every day to be a little better at your profession and your craft, you'll get to a point that it's easier to come across less snooty. It's easier to come across more inclusive. It's easier to come across to be more understanding. At the end of the day, my as I said, I don't have a title on my business card. It doesn't say Bobby, founder, owner, whatever, partner, any of that stuff. It just says Bobby Stuckey. But I think you really, at the end of the day, I am motivated by hospitality first. And hospitality means to be inclusive. And it means to be listening and thinking of the person in front of you and not yourself. So hospitality can't live if you're thinking about you, your mu- movement, makes you happy. You've got to be thinking about that guest in front of you. And every guest has a different story. They have a different way that they're coming from you, coming at you that night. Like they might be a couple, this is their first night out after having their first baby and they're stressed, they're excited. And they just spent, a don't know, 20 bucks an hour for a babysitter. They're coming out to see you. That's uh, You've got a lot of pressure to make their night right. And snootiness, there just isn't room for it. So Bobby, I mean, what, what
0: got you into hospitality in the first place? I think when you talk to people uh, who have this really strong, uh, you know, desire to have hospitality first, like I think about, you know, someone like Danny Myers on the great example, I'm always curious about what made you so passionate about it in the first place. So was it like a home environment where your parents were big entertainers, or was it just throughout your career, you've seen how important hospitality is? Where, where does that drive for you to really think about the customer so strongly come from?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think my parents are just, they just care about people of all walks of life. And really, since I'm 50 years old, so my I was born in 1969, and my parents just early on were just so much about inclusion of people. And I grew up as a very academically challenged kid. I'm dyslexic, ADD. My first step into high school was at a Jesuit school that I got kicked out of. I, I didn't have much success in academia. Uh Early on in life, and um, but I did have success bussing tables. So if you're a young kid and you're you're really struggling in school, but then you find the restaurant business, that's what opened the door to me. And then I noticed, oh my god, at, at, at a pretty young age, I started noticing that every guest that comes in, they have a different thing going on, and you just got to listen. And I maybe I didn't know when I was in my 20s, my early 20s, what that meant, but as I evolved, I started going, oh my god. The more you listen, the more that you can be about hospitality. And then one day it just clicked with me that it can never be about you. You can never say, well, that that guest is picky or that guest is aggressive or that guest isn't nice. No, it's a guest. And they're all going to come at you differently. And you just have to realize if you're going to be about hospitality, it's never about you. It's always about them. And we, uh, I haven't, I mean, I'm a middle-aged Guy, Uh, I haven't lived in other a lot of other countries, but our culture is not set up for hospitality. We are a uh, a culture that's about ourselves first and then the other person. And so, to be about hospitality, you've got to always be thinking about the other person. And it's not natural for us. It's very hard to wake up every day and do it. It's like I mean, I, I always joke that I love my employees that say they're about hospitality. Until God forbid, their schedule gets messed up and they want to go see some <laughs> music festival, they become pretty inhospitable Like overnight, it's hard to always be thinking about the other person. So I don't think the long story is I don't think uh, I don't think it's necessarily about when the light went on. It's just the the journey.
1: Speaking of journeys, you know, at some point you you made the decision to to move from. Just being on the restaurant side to being on the wine production side, and and for people who maybe are have not won't or don't have a chance to go to Boulder and, and can't experience um, the hospitality um, that you and your team provide there, can you talk a little bit about Scarpetta and, and that whole process and and what got you interested in being involved on the production side?
2: Yeah, I mean, really, it just came down to this. It started because we in a in a Frosca, which is a restaurant based on Friuli Venezia Giulia, Italy. It's customary to start with a taiute, which is a a dialect term for a cut of Friolano Bianco. And we needed, we were giving away so much wine, I needed to figure out a way to be more economical of that. And that's how it really started, is going over to Friuli to try to make 100 cases of Friolano that we could use for our Tayut program. And then it kind of evolved from there. I tell you, it's a very humbling experience. Uh, You know, getting wine made is one thing, but... Getting wine made correctly for the right price and selling it is a whole different world. It's wildly humbling. Uh, I encourage everyone to give it a try once and if they like it, to continue it. I could not have Scarpetta where it is if I didn't have my business partner, Lachlan, who really oversees all that. Like I, it would, I would be, it would crush me. I couldn't do it on my own. So one one other question for
0: you, getting back to the the idea of just the the terms of sommelier, I'm curious because you you do a lot of things, right? You as we said, you have Scarpetta, you're a business owner, you also still um you know are on the floor. What do you how do you define the term sommelier? So and we we wrote a law and piece about this, and um so just to give you one of the other people, Raj Parr said, I define the term sommelier as Anyone who works on the floor, the second you leave the floor, you can't use that term anymore. What, how, do you de- how do you define it? Because I know that everyone defines it differently.
2: Well, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, like really being a sommelier is being a wine steward. You're being a wine server. You're a wine waiter. Now you can be a wine professional and not be on the floor 100%. And there are sommeliers that are wine servers that aren't wine directors and they're not, you know... There's so many different wonderful ways to be in wine in our profession now. Not all of them means that you have to be on the dining room floor. Now, I personally try to delegate as much out of my company as possible so I can be on the floor more. Because in a lot of ways, I'm a one-trick pony. I'm much better on the floor than I am at some of the other things I have to do. So I ask for a lot of help in those things. But I think really it's – we should have – uh, more levels of what a wine professional is. Are are you one that runs the P and L statement? Are you the one that just is on the floor? Are you the one that runs a retail store? I think it's so new. We're in such a new wild west now with that, which is exciting. There's so many new there's so many new professions in the wine world that didn't exist 20 years
1: ago. Okay, so Bobby, I have one last question for you um, on my end at least, and and I would say that it's this. There's a lot of people who who are listeners of ours who will hear this interview and will sort of say okay you know here is here's is where I am I may be a wine enthusiast or maybe I am in in the wine industry or in the restaurant industry in some capacity and you know maybe they don't ever see themselves getting to kind of the place you're at but but they want to they want to improve or they want to move forward and they don't really know how to they they're they're not sure whether it's you know maybe they feel like they are in a market that isn't going to support um you know their their aspirations in wine or they're not sure how to get a job at a restaurant that has a you know a really in, you know diverse uh, large wine program do you have any advice for people who who want to you know further their career in wine but but don't really know what to do
2: yeah i mean well first of all um you can be in the wine business and not be in the restaurant business one thing if you want to be a wine professional You know, it's going to take a little bit of time. And I know some people don't like to hear that, but it's a lot of information to digest and to have context with. Context is very important. So first you have to decide, does the restaurant business move you? And if not, let's look at some other things. Um, If you say, answer A, I'm motivated by the restaurant business. Then my first thing to people is I talk to them. I say, I love the restaurant business. I love it. I do want to tell everybody who's in it. Anyone who's in the restaurant business will have a loved one, a best friend, a life partner, a life partner's parent, or somebody that hates your business. And that is hard about the restaurant business is that someone in your solar system hates what you do because the restaurant business is not fun for families, friends, and Friday nights off. So that's the first thing I say, okay, if, you're, if you think you're motivated by the restaurant business, let's talk about what might happen so you don't get into a journey that might not be sustainable for you. And then if you are into the restaurant business, give yourself a five-year goal to learn the craft of hospitality. And people hate to hear that. They get very upset, but it does take a while to be a great server. There are always those rare outliers in the profession, but most of us aren't outliers. Most of us to be proficient in a restaurant need some time at it. And it probably takes about five years to become a good server while you're studying wine on the side. So you're ready to be a great wine professional on the dining room floor. So it might take some time. And that's the first bit of advice I give it. And and people don't always love that advice. We're in a time in society where we want things, we want abbreviated MBA programs, we want things happening faster, but some crafts just take some time.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Bobby, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This was a really, really interesting interview, and I'm hoping that everyone listening um, got a lot out of it as well. Thanks for having me. You too, you too. And I hope it's uh, busy as probably it always is at the restaurant.
2: Always crossing my fingers. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. want right, to Thank everyone else for listening. And Zach, I will talk to you again right here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patrie, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.